We humans have come up with many different names for the God made flesh. Names of beauty and purpose and reverence. Names given by the prophets and disciples. Names that try to describe the indescribable miracle of Jesus. But Jesus called himself by a different name. A name that points both to an ancient prophecy and future glory. A name of humility and deep intention. Join us as we explore the deep significance of the name Jesus chose to call himself, Son of Man. Good morning, friends. It's so nice to see your faces and to those whose faces I cannot see but I know are there, your faces are beautiful too. And I am delighted to be here and part of this this morning. And what energy we have had today. The band brought so much energy. You know, Nick back there working behind plexiglass before everyone was working behind plexiglass, just tearing it up this morning. So it was just wonderful all around. And our AV team, Ryan and Chris and Shannon back there making it happen. And and then to see all these kids up here and to feel their energy as part of this today. You know, I want to say something specifically to the young people. You, you've been on my heart recently. You know, there's a, been a lot of difficult things going on in your world with school and with things changing a lot and changing fast. And there may be times and moments and days when you feel discouraged or when you feel sad or when you feel alone, or maybe you feel a little bit out of control even in your own heart, I just want to say to you this morning, and I really feel this with full sincerity, I am so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of the light you are continuing to bring into the world. I'm proud of the good choices you're making. I'm proud of the love that you are showing to others. And I'm really grateful to you. I'm grateful to know each and every one of you and to be your friend. So thank you for being you. And uh, I'm proud of you. So we're in this series. It's a unique series. We're talking about Jesus, which is it's a perfect time. It's always a good time to talk about Jesus, right? But particularly, it's a good time to talk about Jesus and some of these themes we've been talking about as we build up to Easter. And as we think about Easter, you know, we talk about Jesus at Christmas, too. But it's kind of different when we talk about Jesus at Christmas. We're kind of talking about the beginning of his story and the hope of his story and what was to come in his story. But when we get to Easter, we're talking in some ways about the culmination, the climax. You know, when you watch a movie, the beginning is exciting and fun. But the climax, you know where the real big battle is, where the real big drama is? That's Easter. That's what we're getting to here, that moment of conquest and victory. But the, but the point, one of the purposes of this series is to say that Jesus' big dramatic moment, his big dramatic climax, isn't exactly what you would expect it to be. Didn't look like so many other stories. We talked about him being a human. And Pastor Melody kind of kicked off this series talking about his humanity as the Son of Man. 
And then Pastor Benjamin last week talked about him being a heretic. What an interesting word that is. We don't use that word a lot, but it's such an interesting word to talk about being a person that doesn't just accept the status quo and things as they are, but is willing to say, you know, some things aren't right. We need to change some things. And then being a force of positive change in the world. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite words and one of my favorite ideas. And it's the idea of Jesus as a hero. As a hero. If you know me, you know I love that word. I've spent a lot of my life making films and telling stories about heroes. So when Pastor Benjamin sent me a message that, hey, you want to talk in this series? I said, sure. You want to talk about heroes? I said, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Give it to me now. And so I'm happy to be, have the opportunity to do this. You know, I, you've probably noticed this in your life. Sometimes when you're watching a movie or a television show or reading a book, like in your soul, you know what's going to happen before it happens. You're like, you can just feel it. Like you're like, okay, this is the moment where the main character of the story is all alone and about to be defeated by the enemies, but you know her friends are coming. Like, that's going to happen in like five seconds. Her friends are going to show up. You already know it's going to happen. There are other moments like that, too, that you like feel instinctively inside of you when you're watching a story. Now, it's not that you're a genius, even though you kind of are a genius. But that's not the reason why you can predict it. The reason you can predict it is because these stories, particular stories about heroes, have been with us since the beginning of time. Like the earliest stories we have recordings of in literature and history were stories of heroes. People that overcame great adversity, who defeated monsters and demons and battled in wars and all of these things from the beginning of time. But here's the interesting thing. If you look back in the history of literature, whether you look at China or Israel or Africa or whatever place, and whether you look 5,000 years ago or you look 50 years ago, they keep telling these stories of these heroes again and again. In fact, people who've never met each other, they're all telling the same story. It's very strange. They change it a little bit to match their culture and their worldview, but in general, the story of the hero gets told again and again through the centuries, through time, through cultures. How does that happen? How is it that people that have never met each other through history and time and all over the planet are telling the exact same story over and over again without having ever talked about that before? How does that happen? Well, many years ago, psychologist Carl Jung theorized that when we are born, we come into the world with certain ideas, certain concepts, certain patterns that are like ideas that are built into our brains and into our hearts and into the way we see the world. These patterns affect the way we see the world around us and the way we process it, and they affect the way we see ourselves and our own personal identity and what we believe is true about ourselves and our potential in the world. He used a fancy word to talk about these, these patterns. He called them 
archetypes. So if you want to sound smart when you talk about the patterns and rhythms of stories, call them archetypes. And people will be like, ooh, she's smart. But that's all it is. It's just these patterns that come over and over again. Now, if he is right, if Carl Jung was right, then the reason why you can often predict what's going to happen in a story is that you actually were brought into the world that God actually put inside of you that concept of the hero. And it would have been in you whether you were born on a desert island and never talked to another person ever in your life. That's interesting. That's an interesting notion. One of my favorite academic books is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. It was written by a guy named Joseph Campbell back in the 50s or 60s. And it talks about how these patterns exist. And in fact, if you watch movies like Star Wars or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, read those stories, watch the movies, you can identify the hero's journey. It has 12 parts. And you can watch many of our most iconic movies, and you can watch the hero go through starting a very normal life, and then he receives the call to adventure. But he says, no, I don't want to take the call to adventure. But then he has to take the call to adventure. And he goes, and he's unequipped to do it. But then someone shows up to help him, a mentor, a guide, gives him some special tools or some weapons. And then he crosses the threshold and goes out into the unknown and fights the battles. And after he goes through the battles, he not only has to fight the battles out there, but he has to fight the battles in here. And he has to deal with the issues of his father and his mother and the family that he came from and all that stuff. And then after he's done, he defeats the evil. He is given this boon, this gift that he then has and is able to take back to his own tribe to bless his tribe. And very often, they make him the leader and ruler or king or queen of the tribe in the process. You've heard that story before, right? Like every story is like that. That is the archetype of the hero's journey. And it's not just out there in literature. It's actually in the Bible, too. If you look closely at the story of Abraham, the story of Moses, the story of David, you will see that hero's journey come to life again and again. Why? Because it's not just in literature. It's the journey of being human. It's the journey of being human. We tell these stories because they are the stories of our souls. And although we don't often take magical swords and go out and vanquish dragons and demons and beasts, in our hearts, we kind of do. Often on a daily basis. Over the past year, sometimes minute to minute, we're doing that with our shining magical swords, vanquishing the dragons and the beasts in our own lives, in our own circumstances. Now, what's so interesting is even the stories of Jesus fit into these archetypes, but also they don't fit into these archetypes. They follow the patterns, but they transcend the patterns. And it's amazing to watch that unfold. Now, what we have several verses. I want to share a couple of verses with you this morning that actually, in the story of Jesus, jump to the very end 
of the hero's journey. All those things that I talked about, very end. What's the end look like? Let's read. Uh, in fact, you know what? Before we do that, I didn't do our memory verse. We need to do that. Let's stop for a minute before I get to the big, exciting, dramatic stuff and read the memory verse. So it's Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. If we can put it up on the screen. Let's, let's, let's read this together. Uh, I, I never know how to start this. Like, how do we get it all on rhythms? I, I don't know. If I count down three, that won't do it. I'm just going to start and you join me. When he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. Shannon, leave that up for a minute because the kids need to fill it in on their, their sheets. So, so let that sit for a second. Oh, and I'm already seeing pictures and things being drawn. That's pretty awesome. Okay, now, now, you hung with me for some history. Now I'm going to give you some swords and blood. It's going to pay off right now. All right, yeah, Brenna's super excited. Is it the swords or the blood you were excited about? The blood, all right. You're my kind of girl. So let's go to Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. This is the end of the story. And we're going to read about a warrior hero arriving at the end of the battle. See if this, as I read it, reminds you of any epic movies you have heard in your life. I'm going to go line by line. We're going to talk about how crazy this is. This is a crazy image we're going to talk about here. Okay, Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And this is the words of John, who was an apostle who wrote this book. He said, in a dream he saw this, Then I saw heaven open wide, and oh, a white horse and its rider. The rider, here's the rider's name, the rider named Faithful and True judges and makes war in pure righteousness. Now, he doesn't make war for himself. He makes war in righteousness. He battles for the truth. He battles for what is just and good for you and for the world. Now, listen to this. His eyes are a blaze of fire. Now, make sure you got that clear in your mind. Eyes, blaze of fire. On his head, many crowns. Now, I don't know if the crowns are stacked or they're kind of like lops. I don't know, but lots of crowns. Not just one crown. He's got all the crowns. Here we go. Oh, wait. Let's see. He has a name inscribed that's known only to himself. That's cool. That's cool. He's got a Twitter account that only he knows the handle of, and yet it has a bazillion followers but only he knows the name. That's pretty awesome. I want a name that no one else knows but me. I'm going to make one up this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Now, he is dressed in a robe soaked with blood. <laughs> and he is addressed as word of God. Now, if you didn't know who he was at this point, you probably have figured out who it is, because they call him Word of God. That's the name everyone knows, but he's also got a name no one knows. Pretty cool. Okay, now, that's him, but let's set the whole scene behind him. The armies of heaven, 
mounted on white horses and dressed in dazzling white linen, follow him. So he's got an army on white horses dressed in white linen. It's all in white coming down from behind him, this huge battalion. But he's soaked in blood. So he's like all red with all the crowns and stuff and the fiery eyes. But then this, this is the crazy part. I'm trying to envision this in my mind. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth. What's that look like? A sharp sword comes out of his mouth. Like the, the sword like leads the way on in front of him. So he can subdue the nations, then rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the raging wrath of God, the sovereign strong, on his robe and thigh, on his robe and thigh, is written, I guess it's like a tattoo. I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's just like henna, and it goes away. <laughs> on his robe and thigh is written, King of kings, Lord of lords. How's that sound? Does that sound like a pretty over-the-top, like I can see Jerry Bruckheimer directing that. Like pretty over-the-top, Hans Zimmer adding a little score to it, you know, with lots of drums. I'm hearing lots of drums on that, Nick. You know, you and like 12 other drummers just, just drumming it out. And that's coming out of the sky. Now, what's interesting is that this is not the first time a picture like this has been painted. In fact, a few hundred years before this was written, before John had this dream, back in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel had a vision not so different than this. But this was a prophecy. This was for something that had not come, had not happened yet. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning verse, verse 13 and 14, I saw a human form. Now, it's interesting to note all of this, right? Human form, human imagery. He comes as a human, as a man on a horse. And here's our little phrase, right, that we've been talking about. A son of man, arriving in a whirl of clouds. He came to the old one. How does that work? I got it wrong. He came to the old one and was presented to him. He was given power to rule, all the glory of royalty, everyone, race, color, and creed had to serve him. His rule would be forever, never ending. His kingly rule would never be replaced. Now, looking at these verses, which are kind of similar in their tone and feeling, that sounds pretty much like a lot of the stories that you've heard about heroes, particularly in ancient days. This sort of, you're sort of waiting for him to raise up the sword and say, I have the power. You know, it's that kind of like He-Man, Conan, you know, going to come in and conquer and destroy and rule. And yet to look at these verses without a broader context of who Jesus is and what he means by this, and even more than that, how he intends to arrive at this moment. Because you know the patterns, right? If a story ends like this, what's the pattern to get here look like? 
Well, it looks a lot like Braveheart, right? It's a lot of big, gruff, bearded men with big, heavy axes and swords chopping down people in the middle of fields, losing arms and having blood spurt on the camera, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. That's the path to this, right? That's how we arrive at a moment like this Revelation verse or this Daniel verse. This is how we get here. But this is where the archetype, does that make me sound smarter to say it that way? This is how the archetype gets turned on its head. Now, let's read another verse. Luke chapter 9, an actual story from the life of Jesus. This is kind of a weird story that we don't talk about very much, and it's very short and brief, but so interesting. Jesus is traveling with his apostles, and they're getting close to a certain city. And Jesus sent some messengers from his group ahead to say, hey, Jesus is coming, this group is coming, can you like get the hotels ready, right? Can you, you know, tell the McDonald's to fire up the grill, we got people coming into town. We need to make some food. All those things, right, that you would do to greet guests. So here we go, Luke chapter 9, verses, verse 52, beginning. Jesus sent messengers on ahead. They came to a Samaritan village to make arrangements for his hospitality. But when the Samaritans learned that his destination was Jerusalem, they refused hospitality. When the disciples James and John learned of it, they said to Jesus, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? Did you know this happened in the Bible? This is kind of a weird story. James and John, Master, do you want us, do you want us, Let's be clear about what they said. Do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? Now, there's three things about this part of the story. I haven't even finished the story. Three things about this part of the story that interest me. The first thing is, I mean, who do these guys think they are? This reminds me a lot of Scooby-Doo's nephew, Scrappy-Doo who's this tiny little thing, and he's like, let me at him, let me at him, I'll beat him up. And you're like, you're a runt, you're a nobody. You're just a bunch of mouth and know nothing. Like, who do you think you are that you could do this? Have they done this before? I don't think so. There's no record of James and John calling down a lightning bolt from heaven and incinerating a town. That doesn't exist. So that's number one. Number two, who do they think Jesus is? Like Al Capone and their hitmen? That like, Jesus, send us. We'll knock them out for you. We'll uh, sleep with the fishes. What is this? What do they think is going on here in this? But the third thing that, that's interesting to me, I kind of feel like in some ways they're channeling other visions in their mind of how these sort of heroic stories would go. Now, the stories of Greek mythology, the first time they were even written down, dates back to like 700 B.C. So it's very possible that these guys would know those stories of Greek mythology that you learn in school, or at least have some sense of them. So the king of the gods, Zeus, right? What's Zeus's power? He sits up in this throne and throws lightning bolts down from the heavens on people. So in their mind, Jesus, God, all these things, he's like Zeus. So if he behaves this way, how would Zeus behave? Well, he'd throw a lightning bolt at him. 
So that's probably what Jesus wants, right? Now, I, I'm confused about this. Have they not spent any time with this guy that they wouldn't know that this wasn't his modus operandi? But still, they still say it. Now, here's what's interesting and, and the conclusion of the story. So they've said, Master, do you want us to call a lightning bolt down out of the sky and incinerate them? Jesus turned on them. Of course not! Exclamation point. And they traveled on to another village. That's it! That's the end of the story. You've not heard this story very much because it doesn't have like a big dramatic finale. Like he doesn't give some long speech. He didn't say, that reminds me of a story. Once there was a man walking, he doesn't do that. There's no long conclusion to this. There's no big moral lesson. He doesn't do a miracle. He just says, of course not. I can see him saying it with a little bit of like snark, maybe. Maybe a little bit of swagger. You know, a little bit of like, what is the matter with you guys? What is wrong with you? Where is this coming from? Where, what is this idea you have in your mind, not only about what you can do, little scrappy-do, but what I would want you to do? Now, to understand Jesus better and where his mind was and where his heart was on these kinds of things, going over to Matthew chapter 5, this is part of his famous Sermon on the Mount. I want to read a lot of verses here because these verses really speak to the kind of heroic, image that Jesus was bringing in the world that fit the mold of a hero, but also transcended it. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look, which kind of means I'm about to be a heretic here. Listen up. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with supple moves of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does best. He gives his best, the sun to warm, and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless. The good and bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. In those words, 
Jesus is redefining what it is to be a hero. Not to go out and conquer another tribe, another group, and to be the warrior hero of your tribe and your group. To defend them against the enemies of other people. No, no. Jesus is intent on helping us as human beings conquer the villain, the enemy, the evil that's much greater than all of those enemies. You may read those passages in Revelation and Daniel that we read with the bloody robes and the sword coming out of the mouth and say, you know what, I know a couple of people that I would love to send that writer against right now. Wipe them out because they are my enemies. But Jesus is saying, what if that's not the solution? That yearning you have in your soul to be a hero, to live a heroic life, to see the heroic spirit win in the world, maybe that was never about defeating other people that you disagree with and that disagree with you. Maybe that's never what it was about at all. Maybe it was about defeating a much bigger enemy. The enemy of hatred. The enemy of disconnection. The enemy of separation. The enemy of me feeling that you are outside of me and you are the other and I am the other to you. And we will always be at battle till one of us wins and the others is wiped out. That kind of battle wasn't just for 2,000 years ago. That battle is going on right now. It's going on in your Facebook feed right now. Even though you're not looking at it, it's still happening. As people fight and battle each other to try to defeat each other, to become that vision of a hero in their own world. But Jesus is saying, what if the archetype is true? It's right. It's God-given. It's in your heart. I put it there from the very beginning. But it's so much more. It's so much more. I did not come on a white horse, covered in blood, with a sword coming out of my mouth, with the hosts of heaven in white behind me, to defeat your personal enemies. I came to defeat your greatest enemy. Fear disconnection, loneliness, of hatred and anger, and all the evil that has brought between all of us on this planet in the entire time since we left the Garden of Eden in a moment of selfishness and self-protectedness. What if we could reconcile it? What if we could bring it back together? What if that is the enemy he is riding in to defeat in the world and in your life? And what if you could be part of it? What if that part of you that is drawn to watch stories of heroes, that's drawn to tell stories of heroes, could actually be your story? Not just the story of Jesus, but your story. What would that look like? John chapter 14, verse 6 Jesus said these words. Jesus said, I am the road. 
This is the message. In the translation you may be familiar with, I am the way. I am the road. Also the truth. Also the life. No one gets to the Father apart from me. I've heard this verse my whole life. You've probably heard it too. Typically when I hear this verse, it's sort of meant to be like a demand. Like, you're not going your own way, are you? You know there's only one way. It's Jesus' way. And if you're not on Jesus' way, then shame on you. So it's usually used as like a verse to say, get on track, moron. You got it wrong. I got it right. Figure it out, why don't you? He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Straighten your life out. But what if instead, what if this verse is more than that? What if this verse is an invitation? What if it's an invitation? What if in this moment Jesus is calling out to the hero in you? The hero that has been there for all time, since the moment you were born. And he's saying, I'm, I'm inviting you on this road. I'm inviting you to travel this way. I will show you how to live this kind of life. Your fear that you could not be a hero in the world because your sword wasn't sharp enough. You hadn't trained enough. You weren't strong enough. You weren't capable enough. What if all those excuses, because you know in those old stories, not everyone is a hero. Usually in the old stories, it's one great person, one great Jedi, one great chosen one. What if all of us are chosen people? What if all of us are called out and set apart for this kind of heroic work? And what if Jesus is inviting you today to say, join me. Join me on the way. Join me on the path. Join me on the road. What can we accomplish together? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is a great chapter. If your mind is on resurrection this week as you think about the coming of Easter, this chapter is incredible. It's all about resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20, Paul the writer says, But the truth is that Christ has been raised up the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. That's you. That's you. Christ was the first to be resurrected in a long line of all of us that will be risen and will rise up. There is nice symmetry in this, he writes. Death initially came by a man. And resurrection from death came by a man. Son of man. Everybody dies in Adam. Everybody comes alive in Christ. That's the calling, my friends. Not to live longer. Eternal life is not about the years that you live. It's about the breadth and depth of the living. How do you want to live? I don't really care so much how long I live on this planet. But I want to be able to look back and know that whatever years I had, whatever time I had, I really lived it. I experienced it. And that is the calling. You have been called to be alive. Not to sit and watch Netflix and play video games all day 
but to go out in the world on a heroic mission in the name of Jesus Christ to love, to give, to help, and to be a source of love that brings people together in incredible ways. We're invited to it. And we are given what we need to accomplish it. Talking about heroes and mythologies, one of my favorite stories in all of mythology is the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. I don't know if you know this story, but King Minos of Crete, it's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? King Minos of Crete had this Minotaur, this deadly creature that was a cross between a man and a bull. That's kind of weird, too. He hired Daedalus, the great inventor, the Iron Man of Greek mythology, to build a labyrinth to keep the Minotaur in. He said to Daedalus, Daedalus, make it so complicated that once we put this Minotaur in it, he'll never be able to get out. And once the Minotaur was in there, the, this Cretan king, Minos, Whenever he conquered other people and other nations, he would take the prisoners and he would force them to go into the labyrinth. This inescapable labyrinth. Knowing that either they would die not being able to escape, or the Minotaur would feast on them. And they would die a horrible death with the Minotaur. This was like a game to him. Well, the great warrior Theseus said, this cannot go on. I will end this. And so he volunteered to be a prisoner of war, like sneaky, like a spy. And he, they thought he was just a regular guy, a regular prisoner to be thrown in with the Minotaur, but he wasn't. He was a great warrior of his people. Well, the problem still when he got there was this maze, how would he ever get out of it? Even if he could kill the Minotaur, he would never escape. He would still die with no food and no water in the labyrinth. So... Ariadne, who's the woman that loved Theseus, secretly went to Daedalus, the man who had invented the maze, and said, give me a map. Write out the map for me so that I can give it to Theseus so that he can kill the Minotaur and then escape. Daedalus said, I can't do it. It's too complicated. Even I don't know how to escape. It's such a complicated maze. I'm a genius. I can't tell you. But he said, I have an idea. And he opened up a chest, and out of it he pulled this big thing of string. And he said, look, I can't tell you how to navigate this maze, but tell Theseus to do this. Take one end of the string and tie it to the entrance of the maze. And then take the other end and tie it around his waist. He can then go into the labyrinth, kill the Minotaur in his great heroic might, and then just follow the string back out. A simple idea. But it turned out it was genius. Because after Theseus had killed the Minotaur, he just followed the string out. He did the thing that no one could do, which was escape from the maze. I love this story. Because the simplicity of this heroic quest is so apparent. The world is very complicated. I don't know if you've lived long enough to figure that out yet. But life is intricate and difficult. 
and puzzling. And the number of times in your life that you will feel lost and confused and not sure what to do about things will be many. I feel it often. But sometimes it's as simple as having someone say, I cannot tell you all the rules, but I can give you a simple piece of string to help you navigate, to show you the way. The life of Jesus. We can read about it, pray about it, study it for our whole lives, and never quite comprehend the depth of it. But so many of these words and actions of Jesus are like that little thin piece of string that can allow us to navigate even through the most difficult and complicated of situations and kill the Minotaur and find our way home. Find our way home. I wish I could tell you that by the time you're old and aged, you will know all the intricacies of the labyrinth of this world, but you will not. No matter how great of a hero, no matter how powerful you are, you will not. But it is the example, the cornerstone, the power of Jesus and the Spirit of God working in us that is enough to give us the strength we need to defeat the monsters and demons in our own lives and find our way home, even in the most difficult, puzzling, and challenging of situations. And that is the beauty. That is why we get together and talk about the Bible. It's why we share these stories again and again. Because even when we feel lost and confused and sad and all of those things, we have this piece of string to lead us and guide us home in the process. And so for you today, if you feel that longing in you to be a hero in the world, but you're like, hey, I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I'm an amateur at this maze called life. Trust God. Believe in his power, his strength, and his wisdom to work within you. Trust this community of God-fearing, mature, loving people to help you grow, to help guide you and experience the power of God within you. And within that, we all have the power to be heroes. I want to read this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 30. This is a continuation of these verses about resurrection. Paul says, And why do you think I keep risking my neck in this dangerous work? I look death in the face practically every day I live. Do you think I'd do this if I wasn't convinced of your resurrection and mine as guaranteed by the resurrected Messiah Jesus? Do you think I was just trying to act heroic when I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus, hoping it wouldn't be the end of me? Not on your life. It's resurrection. Resurrection. Always resurrection that undergirds what I do and say the way I live. And it is that mission of resurrection in this world that motivated Jesus, the hero, and can motivate the heroic spirit within all of us every day.
And I pray that he will continue to do his work to unlock the best within us and help guide us to make a positive difference in this community. Let's pray. We are so grateful, Father, for your work within our lives, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace, and for your heroic spirit. Not to conquer us, not to bring us into slavery, but to fight for our freedom. And we pray that you would give us the strength and the wisdom and the knowledge to fight for the freedom of others. That we would be a force for resurrection in this world. That in the darkness, your light would be seen. That even in the times when we feel dead, when we feel that the world is dying and dead, that we would believe in resurrection and we would trust in you to be a force in our lives and in the world to bring that resurrection to pass. Inspire that kind of heroic spirit in each one of us every day. We look to you for guidance and wisdom, for passion and for bravery. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.